Welcome to Language on Purpose with linguist, teacher, consultant, and veteran language learner, Mary Lynn Kinberg. Here's your host for today's show. Welcome, everyone. Today, we dig into a specific language learning context that's challenging and common. We'll talk about what it's like to struggle to learn a minority language when both you and native speakers can communicate in the national language. So to give us perspective and guidance for navigating such a situation, we welcome to the show my friend and colleague, Pam Eckerd. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) Pam's a linguist, language learning coach, teacher, and consultant with SIL International. And this time, I'll jump into the discussion as well with a relevant bit of my own story. Welcome, Pam. Where are you joining us from? Dallas, Texas. And I assume that it's hot. Yes. (laughs) Pam and I taught a course together called Learner-Directed Second Language Acquisition. Please don't tell any stories on me, but what was your favorite part of that course that we taught together? Working with someone who was even more willing to try whatever idea popped into her head than I was, and I'm one that always has new ideas. So we did a lot of creative experiments all summer long, and it was amazing. It was so fun, and, and hopefully the things that we tried um, as classroom instruction techniques, hopefully they really did work and some important stuff stuck in the students' heads. And I'll always appreciate, Pam, what you taught us that summer about the brain and language processing, but we'll save that for another episode. Okay. Pam, you first worked in Guatemala, and, um, and where else have you worked? Actually, we first worked in Peru for two years doing language survey in the mountains. And then we were in Honduras for a year. And then we made it to Guatemala. And we were in Guatemala for eight years, seven, eight years. Um, and more, re- I, we've spent a lot of time in, in Dallas and in international administration. So this has become home to us. But we also worked for a while in, in Asia, in South Asia, in India, and, and Bangladesh. Well, Pam, uh, to start us out today, can you flesh out for us this bilingual context we're talking about? Well, it used to be the case that there were lots of monolingual communities that really had little access to the outside world. And that is not the case in the world anymore. Nations have taken much more responsibility for teaching a national language or at least a regional language and including everyone in their educational systems. So, Completely monolingual communities are are pretty rare now. So what used to work when you had no choice, you didn't share a common language, doesn't really apply very well when you have a, a mutual language that you can go to. Before we get into a specific strategy, 
Can you address the power dynamic issue between a minority language and a majority language and how that influences language learning? Yes. As I mentioned, the government of the country wants to give opportunity to minority language peoples and the national language is that vehicle of power, which often causes minority peoples who want the best for their children to say, okay, even at home, we're going to do our best to speak the national language because, yes, we want to give opportunities to our children to be anything they want to be, to be successful in making more money, having a better life than we have. That's all parents want a good life for their children. And so the national language is seen as the vehicle for achieving a better life. And therefore, there's that tendency to think of the local language as less than. Okay, so with that kind of a mindset, how do you work with the native speaker? How do you get them to speak that language that you're trying to understand and speak it yourself? Well, assuming that they're still, that it's a viable language and you have a good reason for wanting to learn it, we have found that it's more successful if you don't immediately go to the historic village where a language was spoken, but now the national language is coming in, and instead stay in a market town and establish your identity, whatever that is. Say say you're a development worker who helps people with agriculture, that you start your role in a city, but look for a city where they have this minority language, and you you find a bilingual who is willing to be paid to work with you, and you have your system of language learning, that you work with them and gain fluency, and then let them introduce you to people from the community and use what you have and continue to grow in a city before trying to go out to a village situation to establish yourself, if that's your long-term goal. Because whatever language, start your relationships in, it's really hard to change relationship languages. And so it just works a whole lot better if you get enough of a foundation. Just like if you were going overseas to, to live, you'd want to learn some of the language before you went to just make the whole, the whole situation more possible because you wouldn't be a bumbling idiot who knows nothing. When doing some of my graduate work, I read some research on the effectiveness of study abroad programs. And just what you said, you made a broader generalization here that gaining some fluency in a language is optimal before entering an immersion situation. Correct. There is research, actually, on the effectiveness of doing just that before study abroad programs. Right. And I found that totally to be true, what you said, that once you establish your relationships in one language, it's really hard to change a relationship to be speaking in another language. 
Okay, so you were talking about starting your language learning in a market town. Tell us more about what that would look like and what kind of strategy that you would use. Well, I'm a big fan of the growing participator approach developed by Greg Thompson because it's all about relationship formation. Yes, language is a huge part of relationships. And yes, one does do language learning, but it's more than that. It's keeping in mind that it's not just the language, it's the whole worldview, the whole way of seeing that all comes packaged in the language. And it's the relationship with people who speak that language that's the only reason to invest your time in learning. So this notion of growing participation, Greg Thompson, whose PhD is in psycholinguistics, I think. Anyway, he developed this really well thought through sequencing of starting with what he calls the here and now, where you use different objects, toys, or real objects from the world that you're living in. And you, little by little, learn the vocabulary, not just as vocabulary items, but in situations where they're telling you to put the bear in the basket, the bear being a toy bear, of course, and little by little, just increasing your ability to hear and understand and demonstrate your understanding by your responding, and then adding speaking a bit later after Rather than have that early frustration where they want you to say something, and of course you're not going to say it quite right, and then they want you to say it right, and you want to say it right, but you're not there yet. So starting from a point where the focus is on listening, which if you're going to succeed in relationships, learning to listen is the key to relationship building. So it it makes total sense to take the time to learn to listen and they can see, oh yes, they picked up the right, they are understanding me. And they're not trying to um, jump to where they're telling me, but they're taking the time to learn. And then he has a very sequenced approach that continues on with increasing complexity And it's very well thought through and allows you to learn any language through building relationships, having fun with people. That's super crucial for language learning, um, for the way the brain works that we won't go into detail, but it's got to be fun, a little challenging, but not too challenging to be frustrating, but fun for both of you in order to build the relationship and in order to keep growing in your ability to, to interact in this other lingua culture, we say. Okay, so you're in the market town working with a native speaker with a comprehension-led approach that you just explained for us, learning some greetings, not stressing speaking so much. But how do you, in the market town, establish some kind of a communication route with conversation partners that you can? practice with, to practice what you're learning with your language helper? 
Well, when you first get started, um, usually if it's a market town, there are going to be people coming in to market, either to sell or to buy or to do both. And it may be once a week, it may be daily, just depends on the town and how it functions. And so you seek these people out and you find out, okay, if they come in on a bus, when does the bus leave when they're going to be standing around waiting for the bus to fill before it takes off? They have nothing better to do than talk to some people who's making a fool of themselves, trying to learn their language. And um, so that you can build these relationships little by little, the games that you've played with your paid helper, you can take already sort of knowing it all and doing a show and tell for how much you can understand or begin to talk. And if they, if they come in once a week and they get used to, Oh, while I stand around waiting for the bus, this, you know, this guy's going to be there and, he will have learned something new and it'll be fun. You know, it's a goofy activity that we're doing together and um, you know, it'll be something they look forward to and they can see that you're progressing and see that you're serious about growing and little by little, you know, you talk more and more, you find out about them, but it's this process of just establishing yourself as a learner on their terms where you're not interrupting their lives, waiting for a bus Nobody's, you know, there's nothing else to do but be entertained by somebody <laughs> who wants to try to speak their language. But then how do you actually get to the village? Because that would be your goal, right? To actually be where you can hear the language spoken all the time. Right. Well, I think when you get good enough that either your friend who's going home for his mother's birthday or whatever... Um, says, I'd like to take you home and show my mother that I've taught you, you know, you actually can speak our language a bit. So you wait for an invitation, basically, um, however that comes. But it is most likely to come through the person that you've been working with who wants to show off that they've done the impossible, that they have taught this person from the prestige culture or another culture that to actually be able to interact in their language. And then, of course, you work like crazy. Okay, help me know exactly what's going to happen. How do I, find, you know, what, are, what do I need? So you practice the probable dialogues for whatever the situation is that you're invited for in order to be the most successful in letting the people in the village see that you're serious about learning their language and growing and, you, you know, you become the entertainment of the party. It just happens. And it, you know, here's this outsider who can do that my son taught to do this amazing thing. Can you believe it? And uh, then people want you to come again because it was so fun to, to have you. It's not like oh, it's this boring person who can't speak my language, so of course we're going to try our best to speak a common language. It's a person who's, who's the delight of the town because they're <laughs> able to pull off this amazing feat to a certain level. Of course, they're going to laugh at you because you're going to make stupid mistakes, but that's fun too for them at least, and you have to get to the point where it's fun for you too or <sighs> give it up. <laughs> 
then it sounds like in that situation, you would certainly have to be the humble language learner. <laughs> right, right, right. You, yeah, you have to get used to being the local entertainment. Yes. <laughs> well, Pam, I wanted to bring in a little bit of my story at this time. Can you forgive yourself if you're not being successful learning the minority language when that was your heartfelt intention? Well, I certainly hope so, since the vast majority of people who have that as their heartfelt intention do fail to get to the point where they feel like they succeeded. Um, and you, and there's good reasons for that. Often there's no reason it it seemed like the right thing to do. Okay. You know, Oh yeah, I want to work with these people. I need to learn their language. Yes. And, and it's a wonderful goal, but the reality is that often the people that you're working with for whatever, say going back to this agricultural expert, um, most likely that person's going to be working with bilinguals to help them be able to help the rest of the community. And, if you focus on mentoring people who already have some education, some idea of what it is you're trying to accomplish and let them then adjust it to fit the people that are more traditional in their ways, um, you're multiplying your effectiveness by working through that national language and helping them to succeed because they can do a better job because it is their language, their culture, their world, but they can meet you in that halfway place. So often you will be more effective if you just stay with the national language. So you have to analyze what your role is and what, what you really need to accomplish, and then to accept reality. And if it means learning good greetings and, and a few things so that you're socially acceptable, but basically working through a shared language, then that was your goal. So, of course, you should forgive yourself because there's nothing to forgive. Well, that's pretty much what happened to us when we went to work in Panama, our intention was to learn a minority language called Ngobere. There was already a Bible translation in process, um, an organized church who was ready the minute we hit the ground to start a literacy program to support the translation. I mean, they were ready like now. And we intended to learn Ngobere, but we also had to make a family decision to educate our children in Panama City. They were both in high school. We checked out other options that would be more in the language area. But in the end, we decided to live in Panama City and put them in a really good school. We don't regret that decision, but it did have consequences for our language learning. Panama City was uh, four hours from the language area. I tried everything possible to learn I had a language helper in the city that I worked with. We went to a market town in the language area and lived there on some weekends um, and during summer break. 
we had a room built for us on a family's compound where we could stay for a few days at a time. But the pressure was on and we did our work in Spanish. Yes, we knew greetings um, in the first little part of a conversation in Loreto. But we did end up training over 200 supervisors who were ready then to go out and teach reading and writing in Loreto. There was a huge upturn in literacy, and the program was a huge success. But I have to admit that supervisors would come to the workshops we were leading, and we would be debriefing with them, and they would tell us what had been going on in their lives, all in Spanish. And I was really sad because even though I could understand every single word they said in Spanish, I didn't really know what they were trying to tell me at a deeper level. So I feel sad about that. And I know there could have been a deeper communication if we had learned more of their language. Yes, of course. But we all, life is full of choices, Mary Lynn. And we have to, we always have regrets of things that because we chose one thing instead of another, we experience losses. Of course, we experience losses. This is just a normal part of life. And it's, it's right to grieve. It's right to, to, to say, oh, if only I could have done both, but you couldn't. And, but then to, you know, ex- certainly there's nothing to forgive in this whole scenario. It's just choices have to be made and you rejoice in what was accomplished in the choice you did make and accept that none of us get to do everything we would like to do. I have a laminated newspaper article that I keep on my desk of the Bible translation inauguration ceremony when they finally did receive the New Testaments in their language. And it's a picture of a Ngorede woman in her traditional dress and a man, and they both have their copy of the New Testament that they're reading from. But it's still hard to say that it's okay. But that, that picture encourages me that there were results that we can be thankful for and point back to. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you have that. And please rejoice in what was accomplished. It's just hard sometimes to say it's okay. Let me make one more little point here. People who did language learning in the era of monolingual villages tend to assume that you should have done things the way they did, and the world has changed. And you can't. That world doesn't exist anymore. Thank you for that, Pam. Well, is there any other advice that you would give or anything else that you would like to say to us? Thanks for the opportunity to share. Well, you know, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to share with us one of your super duper language bloopers. Hmm. I'm very good at blocking anything. That <laughs> um, I could give you a culture blooper that actually led to a major mindset change. How about that? That would be great. Okay. <laughs> When we lived in Bangladesh, I was working with a young Bangladeshi woman who had gone to school in English, and we used English as our medium of communication. 
And because I wanted to make her, my goal was to let her be the language learning coach in country for the expats who wanted to improve their English, their, their Bangla. And to do that, they needed to have someone they could talk to in English along the way. So it was important in my goals for her to learn English so I could be finished and go back to the U.S. where my grandchildren were. So um, we spoke English. But in the world of the Bangladeshis, you do not hand things to people with your left hand. That is dirty. And I really worked hard at being culturally appropriate, of course. But I didn't always succeed. So one time I handed her something with my left hand and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm not supposed to do that. And she looked at me and said, but Pam, you can't do anything wrong. You're old. It's my job to make you comfortable. And uh, coming from the U.S. where being old doesn't carry that same job responsibility for all young people that their, their mission in life now is to make you comfortable and never make you feel like you ever did anything wrong. I liked that. And I decided, hmm, <laughs> being old has certain advantages. So I've um, sort of adopted that philosophy. Hey, I'm old. Yeah, I make mistakes, but it's your job to cover for me. <laughs> well, I've never considered you old, Pam. <laughs> I've always told you that we're older. <laughs> but we, it's not, it, we have different cultural values attached to the words. And that's my story that I, because of my cultural blunder, I stumbled on a new reality about being old. <laughs> a case where our mistakes work for us in the end. Yes. <laughs> Okay, Pam, thank you so much for being on the show today. I hope we can have you back soon. I'm available. It was fun. Thanks. Thanks.